Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Just a quick heads up before we start. This episode contains a brief reference to suicide. Previously on Deep Cover. He talked about the potential for being a Russian spy, going to various universities undercover. It had so many interesting elements. The more people that are looking for your suspect, the better chance you have of finding them. I remember seeing my picture and it saying, Esther Reed. And I was like, oh shit. Like literally, oh shit. This isn't gonna go away. By the end of 2007, Esther Reed had been on the run for almost a year and a half. During that time, she was being chased by a number of people, including the Secret Service, the police down in South Carolina, and a private investigator with a TV crew. And so far, all of them had pretty much struck out. And this left the federal prosecutor on the case, a guy named Walt Wilkins, feeling rather, well, frustrated. I mean, we were chasing her around the country, and, you know, we would look at each other and say, how, how are we not finding this young girl who, you know, stole some identities? But good grief, guys, we're the federal government here. We got to be able to do that. By this point, this young girl was now 29, by the way. And elusive as she was, Walt Wilkins still felt confident that she could be found. When you have the federal government looking for you, you make a mistake somewhere along the way. You make just enough of a mistake where they're going to be able to find you. What the authorities really needed was a bounty hunter. Remember Boba Fett from Star Wars? Badass dude with the green body armor and the cool jet pack? That's what the feds needed. And there actually is an agency that you call in situations like this. The United States Marshals Service. They specialize in tracking down fugitives. So that's who the feds called in. And the U.S. Marshal assigned to the case was a guy named John Bridge. Boba Fett, as it were. And look, there are a lot of Johns in this story, so I'm just going to call him by his nickname, Bridge. Bridge looks more like a wizard than a lawman. Has this huge beard, really soft-spoken guy. No jetpack, but he does ride a motorcycle. How confident did you feel that you were going to find her? 100%. <laughs> How can you say 100%? 
Uh, I'm a hundred percent on every investigation I work. Doesn't mean I find them every time, but yeah, I was a hundred percent. When Bridge started on the case, his first goal was to figure out who, if anyone, she was still in contact with. Like, did she have a lifeline? You know, being a fugitive is stressful. You're always looking over your shoulder. You're always wondering, is today the day? On the one hand, it makes perfect sense to want a lifeline. But it's also a liability. Because whoever that lifeline is, whether it's a sister or a father or an old flame, that person can also betray you, either deliberately or accidentally. So, Bridge says, in order to stay truly hidden, you have to cut everyone off. That's a hard thing to do. You know, when you, it's easy to say. It's very easy to say, I can cut everyone off. It's not easy to do. So the question was, did Esther Reed have a lifeline? Bridge hoped that the answer was yes and that he might find them. So now all hopes were pinned on John Bridge, the federal government's very own Boba Fett, the last best hope. Though there actually was yet another person looking for Esther Reed, arguably the person who knew her better and longer than anyone else, and who had the best insight into why Esther was running in the first place. In this episode, I'm going to tell you both their stories, because they were both looking for Esther Reed, and only one of them would find her. I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, Season 3. Never seen again. Episode 5 The Searchers. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great, but they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. 
That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I'm just going to ask you, I'm just going to ask you to start by introducing yourself and explaining how you're related to Esther. Um, my name is Edna and I am one of many Esther's older sisters. Edna is the other person searching for Esther in this story. In the interest of privacy, I'm only going to use first names when talking about Esther's siblings. Technically, Edna is Esther's half-sister. They had the same mom, but different dads. Edna is older by quite a bit. She was almost 20 when Esther was born. So, in many ways, Edna was more like a second mom than a sibling. As far as I can tell, Edna was devoted not just to Esther, but to all of her siblings. There were a lot of them, too. Nine in total. Edna says she was the hub, the connector in the family. I like to know what's going on, solve the issue. I'm a fixer. I want to control my environment, and I don't like chaos. So I tend to make a plan and do it. That was her credo. No chaos, no drama. Keep it neat. I mean, everybody in my family knows when you put the mayonnaise back in my fridge, it always goes in the door at this height. Don't stick it anywhere else because I want it where I want it. I like things to be there when I go get them. I want to know where they are. She wants to know where the mayo is. So, you can only imagine how distraught she was when Esther vanished. Because she'd watched Esther grow up and even helped raise her in some ways. In the summers when they were kids... Esther and her brother, E.J., would stay with Edna in Seattle, like a sleepaway camp in the big city. We had so much fun because they were Montana kids that never saw or experienced anything. Edna remembers one visit in particular when Esther was probably about eight years old. They all took a ferry ride, visited the Space Needle, had a ball. Even the local department store was a big hit. The escalator was fascinating to them. So if we were bored, I'd just walk over and let them ride the escalator up and down because they thought that was cool. Esther also became close with Edna's husband, Randy. He was kind of like a second father. Edna says he was a gentle giant. Randy and Esther played all kinds of board games together. Esther would talk trash. 
and he would tell her playfully, hey, don't let your alligator mouth get your teddy bear ass in trouble. He was that kind of guy, and Esther loved him. When Esther went missing, she was 21 years old, so not a kid anymore. But still, her disappearance turned Edna's world upside down, and we'll get into all that. But before we do, I want to mention something. When I spoke with Esther, she told me that she was running, in large part, to get away from Edna, to escape her older sister. And it got me wondering, what exactly happened between these two siblings? Because their falling out, whatever caused it, seemed to have so many implications about why Esther was running and how she might be found. As far as I can tell, the relationship between the two sisters started to sour when Esther became a teenager. As you may recall, this was a rough period for Esther. Her parents had separated. She was suffering from severe social anxiety. She refused to go to school. Sometimes she hid in the basement of her house instead. Edna watched all of this with concern. I saw her pull away and pull into herself more. The one person that Esther remained close to was her mother. She was truly Esther's pillar. Esther talked to me about this a lot, how her mom was the only person who really tried to understand what she was going through and who helped her cope. But to Edna, with her cut-and-dry, no-nonsense demeanor, this all looked a bit different. They were very close, but my mom babied her a lot. And... I know I'm an older sibling saying this about a younger sibling, and we all say that. But she really did, in many, many ways, Esther was a very little girl, even at 18. That bluntness is kind of Edna's trademark. I talked about this with their brother, EJ. He was close with both of his sisters and witnessed their dynamic. I think Edna kind of ran over Esther. I don't know if it's intentional or just when... Like when a horse walks by and knocks you over, it definitely hurts you. But did the horse mean to do it? And I think that's kind of how Edna is. She's just a force of nature. And she doesn't intentionally hurt people, but quite often they are damaged in her wake. The tensions between Esther and Edna really came to a head around the time her mom's cancer came back. They were all living in Seattle at the time. Edna being the family fixer, jumped right in. She became her mom's caregiver, 24-7. It was exhausting, and it went on for years. As their mom's health worsened, she spoke candidly with Edna about matters that were emotional, but also practical, like what would happen after she was gone. Apparently, their mom was very concerned about Esther. As things got worse, I remember my mom telling me, you need to watch her. You need to take care of her. She's going to need to be taken care of after I die. That was always her verbiage, is you need to take care of her and watch out for her because she's going to have a hard time. What did you say to your mom in response? I mean, she's part of my family. Of course I'm going to watch out for her. That's what we do. You know, our whole family does that with each other. You know, that's what family does. At one point, Edna had to go away for a quick trip, and she asked Esther to stand in for her, to stay at the house, and to look after their mom. Esther told me about this. 
my mom was having a really bad time with the chemo. It was just awful. And then I remember she goes, I can't do this. And I remember being like, what do you mean you can't do? Like, what are you talking about? And then I remember she said, even for you, I can't do this. And then... I mean, I think rationally I knew that that meant that she had chosen to just to die. When their mom finally passed, it hit the two sisters very differently. EJ, their brother, saw it this way. Edna was taking care of mom. So when mom died, then suddenly Edna got her life back. But when mom died for Esther... I think mom was just the pillar of Esther's life. And and when she was gone, it was difficult to find her way. Afterwards, Edna invited Esther to move in. But it didn't go well. They fought about matters large and small. Like, I don't need to put the silverware in the silverware drawer the right way. I don't need to hang the dish towel up exactly how you're going to hang it up. I don't need to stack the plates exactly how you're going to stack them. And I know that maybe I put the um, bread on the left side instead of the right side. Like, she's just a very, very critical human being. And after a while, like, you just are like, can you just get off me? This may sound like ordinary stuff. The sort of fight that happens when any house guest stays too long. But for Esther, it was darker than that. Because of her social anxiety, Esther says she needed space, time to recharge, which Edna wouldn't give her. And of course, she had just lost her mom, who was her refuge. And even though Edna cared for her, she was a prickly substitute. So Esther moved out. And then she was truly alone. Esther says from here she went into a tailspin, couldn't hold down a job. She says she was homeless, crashing with friends or wherever she could. I mean, I was incredibly depressed. I've just lost my mom. I have no contact with really anybody who's able, willing to help. Um, You know, thinking about killing myself all the time. Like, at that point, it's just survival. Like, just get through the day. Several months passed, and Edna hadn't heard much from her sister. Then, one day, she got a call from the police. They told her they'd just arrested a thief who'd stolen a purse, and they'd found one of Edna's blank checks on her. The cops wanted to know if Edna knew the culprit. And I said, well, there's a person. Well, do you know a person called Esther Reed? And I'm like, oh, yeah, she's my sister. This came as a shock, and it also cleared up something for Edna. You see, a while back, someone had stolen Edna's checkbook and had written some hot checks in her name. But Edna never figured out who that was. She never suspected that her own sister was to blame. But now she learned that after Esther moved out, she'd actually broken into her house through a window and grabbed her checkbook. At this point, Esther had gotten herself in a real pickle. The police had busted her for stealing a purse from her co-worker. The co-worker was pressing charges, so Esther had to appear before a judge. 
On the day of the hearing, Edna went down to the courthouse too, just so she could see her sister, because it had been months since they'd last spoken. At the hearing, Esther caught a break. The judge gave her probation and three days in jail. Afterwards, Edna tracked down Esther in the parking lot and confronted her, because even though she wasn't pressing charges, she still had beef with her sister. Edna says in the heat of the moment, she was very upset. I don't feel anger, I feel betrayal. And that's, that's the hardest thing, I think, is the feeling of that someone you love and loves you back would do that to you. You don't do that to people you love. You just don't. Edna confronted her about the stolen checks. And her only response was, well, I didn't think it would affect you because I knew the bank would take care of it. And it's like, so that makes it okay? I remember her saying, you're so lucky I didn't testify against you. She said, I wanted to say so many things up there. You're not sorry for anything. And she was just like going, you know, off on me. Edna's whole thing was tough love. And she genuinely wanted to fix things, put the mayo back where it belonged, get Esther's life back into shape. She kept calling and emailing Esther. Edna told me she wasn't very soft and compassionate. She felt like her little sister needed to get her shit together. And she wanted to help. But to Esther, this didn't feel like help at all. It felt more like harassment and judgment, which she didn't want, which she was desperate to get away from, in fact. The one person who might have fixed all of this was their mother. But she was gone. And this seemed to underscore the tragedy of it all, because there was no one left to keep the peace between the two sisters, or to help Esther get back on her feet. After this fight in the parking lot, Esther took off. She did not want to be accountable to me for what she did. So in, in, a, in a way, me confronting her, I feel kind of, I don't know if it made her run away, but it, she didn't want to face it. Weeks passed then months, then years, and Esther never returned. She just took off. I mean, it just, poof, and she was totally gone. All the while, Edna recalled what her mom had asked of her before she died. She was very concerned of what would happen to Esther when she was gone. Of course, I felt like I let my mom down because I didn't take good enough care of Esther, and she took off. Edna tried to find her. She eventually filed a missing persons report with the police. At one point, the authorities even found a body that they thought might be her. They did a DNA test. It wasn't Esther. And so, the mystery lingered. At family gatherings, everyone would wonder about her. You get together and everybody's there, but she's missing, you know? And it's like, we're not complete. She was just always missed. Because that's the thing about Edna. She was gruff and forceful, the horse that might knock you over. But she did care, and the uncertainty of it all ate away at her. And it's like, I need to know. I need to know if she's dead or alive. I just need to know that she's okay or she's gone. I mean, the, the wondering was very hard. And this wondering, this state of not knowing, continued for almost seven years, until about 2006. At that point, 
the authorities contacted Edna and she learned that her sister was in fact alive, that she had attended Columbia University, posing as Brooke Henson, but that she was once again on the run. Edna wanted to help the authorities find Esther, and it seemed like Edna was in theory a great resource. But at this point, she hadn't heard from Esther in years. Esther Reed did not appear to have a lifeline. She had cut everyone off. But she'd actually done one better than that. She'd hit the reset button once again. She'd dialed up yet another identity, which meant once more she was a few steps ahead of Edna and John Bridge and all the other people who were looking for her. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices, Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered... How can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. John Bridge, the U.S. Marshal, the Boba Fett of the federal government, he'd reached a dead end. Because Esther, she did not seem to have a lifeline. So Bridge knew he'd need another strategy. 
I did use creativity um, in in this investigation, but that kind of goes into the areas that I can't really um, discuss the process. Bridge told me that he couldn't get into the exact methods that he used. Basically, the tradecraft that the U.S. Marshals used to find people. What he could tell me was that he eventually discovered a trail of breadcrumbs on the Internet. I was able to basically put pinpoints on a map. They were like um, spots in time, just very brief um, glimpses into what she was doing. Basically, he figured out when and where she was on a few occasions. The only problem was that by the time he had this intel, it was roughly a year old. So a pretty cold trail, right? But that didn't matter to Bridge. What he was looking for were identifiers. Like, what name was Esther using now? What kind of car was she driving? And what state was her driver's license from? That kind of thing. So, Bridge took a very close look at the places where she'd been, at those pinpoints on the map. And a few of them were businesses. So, he got a list of all the customers at one of those businesses on a given day. And then what he did was, he compared that to other businesses that she'd been to on other days. And by comparing a few different lists, he was able to identify a name that popped up on all of them. Jennifer Myers. She was using Jen, Jenna Myers, Jenna Marie Myers, Jennifer Myers. She would, like, construe that different ways when she would give her name to people. Using this info, he was able to determine that she'd gotten a driver's license from Iowa. And then he figured out what kind of car she was driving. A 1993 green Subaru Legacy. And from there, Bridge says, he knew it was just a matter of time before he found her. He began to gather more current pinpoints for his map. And in the early winter of 2008, he came to believe that she was occasionally in Tinley Park, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. So he called the police department there and told him to keep an eye out for that green Subaru and its driver, one Jennifer Myers. Where did the name Jennifer Myers come from? Uh, That, again, I want to be very careful here. Interestingly, there were things that Esther wouldn't tell me either. Tradecraft, I guess you could call it. Esther insists that she didn't want to glorify what she did, or how she did it, or have anyone else follow in her footsteps. So she was pretty tight-lipped here. But I was able to piece together much of what I wanted to know by combing through court records. Basically, she obtained a birth certificate in one state, and then created a fake marriage in another. That way, she cooked up a completely fictional identity. And this new identity worked for a while, until the winter of 2008. At the time, she was in Tinley Park, Illinois, just one of the many places where she stayed as she moved about the Midwest. One day, she was in her car, she'd been driving around. I had been pulling up to a stoplight and there was a cop car. And you know how, like, there's two lanes and normally he would pull up next to me, flush with me. He kind of stopped at the back of my car and I was like, is he fucking running my plate? The answer was yes, he was fucking running her plate. And pretty soon, U.S. Marshal John Bridge knew exactly where she was. About two weeks later, 
Esther was passing back through Tinley Park. She was in her car, headed for lunch at Arby's. She grabbed her food and then headed back to the motel where she was staying. And it was a crazy day in town because, totally by chance, there had been a mass shooting in Tinley Park that very morning. A gunman had walked into a local department store and killed five women in cold blood. So there are now cops everywhere. As Esther drove back to her motel, she saw squad cars, but she'd heard about the mass shooting, so she didn't think any of these cops were looking for her. So she gets back to her motel room, and a short while later, there's a knock on the door. She opens up, and two cops are standing there. They were like, oh, we're just checking IDs. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're probably looking for the person. The person, meaning the shooter, because she figured there was some kind of door-to-door search going on. Turns out, these two cops had spotted her Subaru, called it in, and learned that its owner, Jennifer Myers, a.k.a. Esther Reed, was a federal fugitive. The dots had finally connected. Well done, John Bridge. So, at this point, the two cops at her door were hip to what was going on. Esther wasn't. She confidently hands them her Jennifer Myers ID. The cops take it, call it in, and then tell Esther something to the effect of, this isn't coming up valid. The cops are just standing there in the doorway at this point, holding her ID. And I was like, what? No, no, it has to be, like, this is a good one. Like, you should use it. And he runs it again, and he's like, no, ma'am. And then they came in the room, and I was like, oh, shoot, if they're coming in the room, this like, they don't really have the right to come in my room unless I'm in some serious trouble. Then they snap handcuffs on her, lead her outside, and it was a scene. Esther says the parking lot was full of squad cars, cops everywhere. Some were standing by her Subaru, Others were gathering up her two dogs. The cops marched her over to a squad car, got her in the back seat. And that's when reality began to set in. I was already in the car and we were pulling away and I look over and they have my whole car open and there's many of them. And I think I said, I know what this is about. I'm Esther Reed. After all these years and years of running and passing herself off as other people, She just tells these two cops who she really is. Says, I'm Esther Reed. And this gets, well, pretty much no response at all, at least initially. Esther says these guys, they didn't want to get into it with her. Because as she would soon discover, this matter was way bigger than them. So the local cops, they took her down to the police station. And the mood there was frenetic. I'm sitting there and I can tell everybody is like excited and adrenaline is running and they're all, you know, this is a big deal to them. And so I'm kind of freaking out. She says there was a cop going through her suitcase, putting her stuff into little plastic evidence bags. And finally, Esther spoke up. And I said, you know, I have a book in my suitcase. Can I read a book? And there was a sergeant and he's like, yeah, it's it's fine. You can read a book. Eventually, that sergeant, he came back, and he explained he had to take her fingerprints. Esther still remembers him. She says he was about 50, with light brown hair and a kind way about him. I tend to wear my feelings on my face, and he goes, you know, it's going to be okay. 
He's like, I know it looks like it's a big deal and everybody's making a big deal, but he's like, I've been working law enforcement a long time. And this is really not that big of a deal. And he kind of gave me the sense that he was, um, he was fatherly. Um, and so that made me feel a lot better. Later that night, the cops found a place for Esther to sleep. And so they ended up taking me, I think it was probably to a drunk tank. I've never actually been held in any place like that, but um, I didn't have anything. Like there was no toothbrush, no blankets, nothing. Like there was a, a mat and that's it. So she's in the drunk tank where she has a moment to herself, a moment to process what's happened. And she's just hoping that maybe the kindly middle-aged sergeant was right and this wouldn't be as big a deal as it seemed. But that hope, it was short-lived. The next day, some Secret Service agents came to get her, to take her to court. There um, was a bay that they could have pulled the cop car into and got me in the car. And instead, they had it outside the bay so the media could get their walk of shame picture. Was there a big media presence? Oh, yeah. They were absolutely, it was massively crazy. Um, and they were clearly like strutting a little bit and like, yep, we got her. And, you know, there were at least 30 reporters. They were very, very close um, to me. Like they were right up on me. Esther was arraigned in federal court. Then she was taken to a federal holding facility. And here, a correctional officer took her up to a cell. The gentleman who escorted me up, he shoved his finger in my face, not in like a mean way, but he goes, and you, young lady, you need to call your family. And I was like, okay, like you clearly don't know what's going on. I haven't talked to my family in 10 years or something. Like, I literally just got arrested, dude. Like, chill out. Eventually, Esther and Edna did get on the phone. I just wanted to hear her voice, you know, and say, yeah, you're okay. It was kind of ironic, really. This whole saga began because Esther was, in essence, running from her older sister, Edna. In the intervening years, she'd taken on several identities, attended an Ivy League school, been chased by the Secret Service, become infamous. And now, the end of it all, the first person she really had to answer to was her sister. Edna had a lot to tell Esther about what had transpired in the past decade. There was a lot of things that happened in that 10 years. They're probably the 10 hardest years of my life from the time my mom died until, yeah. Started with her dying and I lost many people in the next five years. Over the phone, Edna relayed the news. Explained that since they'd last spoken, she'd buried two brothers, a brother-in-law, a best friend from high school, and her husband, Randy. I think the hardest thing I told her in that conversation was that Randy had died. Randy was the gentle giant who used to play board games with Esther, the one she'd laugh with and talk trash to, the one who would tell her jokingly, hey, don't let your alligator mouth get your teddy bear ass in trouble. Randy and Esther had always been close. He was one of the few people that kind of got me. <laughs> And so even after things were bad with me and Edna, me and Randy would still, like, hang out and play video games or whatever. And so Randy was like a dad to me. And she told me that he had died. 
And that's when I started crying hysterically. As far as I could tell, for almost a decade, Esther had managed to forget her old life, to shut it out, both the good and the bad. Though I suspect she hadn't forgotten it completely, that it lurked on the periphery of her consciousness like a smudge on the horizon, the shadowy tree line in the rearview mirror, the very thing that kept her moving. All the memories of her parents' separation and her dying mother and her hard-edged sister, but her past it hadn't all been bad. There'd been good things, too, like her brother EJ and Randy. And somehow, the news of Randy's passing, it seemed to underscore that this life and this world that she'd left behind hadn't ceased to exist, that it quietly played on without her, and there were things she'd missed, things she could never get back. Eventually, the federal authorities moved Esther down to South Carolina. After all, that's where this investigation really began, and more importantly, where the prosecutor was based. So, first she flew to Oklahoma City, then took another flight to Atlanta, and from there, she had to be taken by car down to South Carolina. Her escort for this trip was John Bridge. You know, Boba Fett. Bridge says he volunteered for this assignment. You know, I wouldn't normally be doing a transport from Atlanta to South Carolina, but I, I kind of, uh, you know, I was kind of hoping to learn, right? I mean, you, you can be a great investigator, you can be a mediocre investigator, but you won't become a better investigator unless you learn from the investigation. Bridge and Esther both remember this car ride and told me it was actually very pleasant. We kind of small talked a little bit and then, you know, it's about a two hour drive. I think there was some silence for part of the journey as well. How did she compare to the person that you had imagined? She just seemed like, you know, somebody's sister. You know, just an average person who got caught up in something that got bigger than what they ever planned it to be. Esther says that at one point, Bridge talked a bit about his own job. He goes, I'm not normally assigned to find people like you. He goes, normally I focus on like big stuff. And he goes, I just had to meet the person that they put me on. And then he goes, why couldn't you just use the name Esther Reed? What did you say to him when he said, why couldn't you just use the name Esther Reed? I say the same thing always. I ask myself that every day. There's no good answer. But for many people, including the authorities down in South Carolina, this was a question that demanded an answer. Much remained unresolved. Detective John Campbell still wanted closure. He and the other folks in Traveler's Rest wanted to know what, if anything, could be learned about the fate of Brooke Henson. Next time on our season finale. The whole day you're being sentenced is very surreal. She didn't ask for what happened to her. I feel like she deserves justice. We close our mind off to anything but the facts. And... If you close down all those possibilities, you're gonna miss something. Isn't it possible the dangers though is that your imagination runs away with things and leads you too far from the facts? You could, you could, yeah. I lied and lied and lied and lied.
cover is produced by Amy Gaines and Jacob Smith. It's edited by Karen Shakurji. Mastering by Jake Gorski. Our show art was designed by Sean Carney. Original scoring and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra. Fact-checking by Arthur Gompertz. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Jake Halpern. Thank you.